Hello, my name's Tom Walker. Welcome to That'll Be The Day. In this podcast, I'm talking to a former professional cricketer who played for Yorkshire and England. But before we hear from Jeff Cope, if you like the music at the start of this podcast, it's a track called That'll Be The Day by the Liverpool band The Vow. And if you like the sound of the music, as always, I'll be featuring a track by The Vow at the end of this podcast. To find out which one it is, stay tuned. As a cricketer, Jeff Cope shared dressing rooms with some giants of the game, and he's a pretty big name himself. But at the age of 37, Jeff was told he had the eye condition retinitis pigmentosa. Some years later, Jeff spoke to an ophthalmologist who plotted the course of how his eyesight would deteriorate. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke to Jeff on Zoom, and whether you're a cricket fan or not, I think you'll find his story completely fascinating. I started by asking Jeff how his eyesight is now. Well, at the moment, it's it's not very good, I'm afraid. Um, I have with me currently a guide dog, my third. Um, but I go back to, I'm 76 years of age now, but when I was 37, I was diagnosed with, um, well, it was in initially uh, something completely different. I, I had sort of an enlarged retina and... Then I went to see a specialist who confirmed that I had RP. Uh, His words were, I'm sorry, you've got retinitis pigmentosa. Don't dash off to America or Australia who think they've a cure. They haven't. Uh, And he opened the door. And I said, excuse me. I said, you've just swore at me. So he said, I've never swore at a patient in my life. I said, "Retty, Retty, what did you say? So he said, do you want me to write it down? I said, yes, please. It says retinitis pigmentosa. So I says, well, what's that in basic English? Well, you're going blind. And I came away from there, as you can imagine, in a bit of shock. Um, I rang my optician, who who was a great guy. Um, He was uh, a consultant with Kelvin Lenses at the time. And he made contact with me and said, look, you know, I look for things like this all the time. I saw nothing at all, but I'm coming to see you. And he came to see me and he said, it's it's very, very, very mild. So um, I went on then to 42 when I had conjunctivitis. And one night uh, I rang my doctor and through the night he kept ringing me and we kept bathing the eyes. And then he fixed me up to go see a gentleman called Bruce Noble who happened to be six foot 10 um, and worked at the local hospital, the Nuffield Hospital. And he said, if I can get there by eight, Bruce would look, fit me in and and have a look at me. And we we made a friendship there. um, And he asked me if I'd go through the tests and the routines again. And I said, do you not think it's there? He said, I'm not saying that, but he came out with, it is there, sadly. Um, but he said, it's very, very mild. You've just got to get on with your life. And he then told me what he thought would happen throughout my life, even to the point of saying, when you reach 50, I think it'll be the time when you've to give up your car. And he plotted things through and he's been a a source of comfort ever since and uh, after he'd retired we actually bumped into each other at a test match at Leeds last year and we had a a very good day but um, I owe a lot to him. 
Can we go back to uh, the start of your cricketing career, Jeff? Um, uh, cricket fans wouldn't forgive me if we didn't have a, a chat about cricket um, as well, because you played for Yorkshire and England, and you started playing for Yorkshire, I think I'm right in saying, at a fairly young age. Were you 19 or 20? I was 19. I, I, I joined Yorkshire. Um, I played in the second team in 64, and I made my debut in 1966. Um so I'd come through school ranks. Um, I'd played with um, Yorkshire boys, England boys, and against people like Frank Hayes and David Lloyd and people of this ilk. And uh, we've been against each other all our lives. Um, but uh, interestingly, they're good friends. And, and this is what the game presents to you. Am I right in saying, Jeff, that uh, while you were very young, I don't know, 14 or 15, you played in a game and took all 10 wickets of the opposition? You're very right. You've obviously done your homework. Um, I was very fortunate that I went to a junior school in Crossgates in Leeds, where I was born, called Manston. And uh, we, we had a headmaster there called Ernest Smelt. And he was, I believe a former Durham cricketer, um, but um, he played locally in the leagues. Um, we also had a teacher called Ken Fletcher, and these two people had such an effect on my sporting career. Um, it's just, you can't measure it. Um, Mr Smell rolled up one day um, to ask if I could play on a, on, on the Saturday and my mum said, but um, I thought school had finished. She, he says, oh, yes, it's the holidays, but he's going to play with my men's team. She says, but he's, he's only just 11. And she said, and, and Mr Smelt replied, you brought him to me at four and a half, and I promised to look after him. I will reiterate that promise. I will look after him at the cricket, but he's certainly capable of playing at our level. But go back. 12 months, um, we got to the school's final and it was an inclement week. We were due to play the quarterfinal and it rained and it rained most of the week. We ended up playing the quarterfinal on the Thursday evening and I managed to score 35 not out, out of 70-odd to, to win the game and took six wickets. And then in the semi-final, we played on the Friday night and uh, again, I was fortunate I got another 30 odd and um, we got to the, the final on the Saturday. And at that stage, it was the first day of the school holidays. So consequently, I mean, finished school on the Friday. Um, a lot of boys, parents had booked holidays and decided to go. So we lost our two opening batsmen and our two opening bowlers. So when we got to the final, Mr. Fletcher said to me, he said, Jefferson, you're going to open the bowling today. I said, oh, does that mean instead of bowling my off spinners, I have to run up and bowl it as quick as I can? No, no, I said, you just bowl your off spinners. And being short of as we were, I did open the bowling and, and the figures were actually 16.1 overs, two maidens, 26 runs and all 10 wickets. Um, and when I came off, obviously fairly jubilant and uh, 
happy and dad came on to me and he says come and see your mum and he says do you realize what the what the lad's done and mum says well there's a lot of fuss so he says he's taken all 10 wickets that means he's bowled everybody out she said well what about number 11 <laughs> as mum sat there with her knit one pearl one knitting needles going like mad but uh, i was the smartest lad there with sort of pressed trousers and clean shirts and that was mum's pride and joy but i then went on to get 35 36 not out out of the 55 required and we won by five wickets how did the opposition react to this young whippersnapper taking quite so well taking all the wickets basically and winning the game for you know for, for his team well they, they had a master called mr mr grady and uh, i came across him later when he was part of the um, school teachers who looked after Leeds schools cricket under 15s and um, he recalled that day very much and uh, he just said we thought we thought we got a great chance when we knew that the the two opening batters weren't there and the opening bowlers weren't you, they were limited on on uh, who they could pick and and we were very confident that we could do it and then he said you stopped stepped in early by opening the bowling and taking a wicket in the first over and and suddenly we were on the back foot all the way through did you know from that point onwards jeff that you would have a very good chance of representing the county or did you still think well it's very early days and I've you know I've had a good day today well, what were your thoughts um around that time no, it, it was a dream because we, you know, we'd spent so much time. We played in the park. There was a regular, you know, crew from the school who, who met there. Our parents took it in turns to come and bring us out of the park at half past seven and quarter to eight if we got an extension. Uh, and they walked us home. But those lads were, were good lads. We, we played and practiced, but we, we just lived lived the dream and you know I, I remember many hours in the park where I used to run a long way and let it go and drag my feet and mum and dad used to give me grief for my sandals starting wearing as a, a on a drag toe cap because I was Fred Truman and um, I said well you better buy me a steel toe cap he's got one you know and th th this went through but it was all dreams at that stage and um, you know we hoped my dad had an opportunity to join Arsenal in his younger days, but he didn't. Um, but he, he didn't want me to go through life saying if. And I played football at a, a, a very reasonable level and we ended up, uh, the boys were taken down to Ellen Road to Leeds United and uh, we signed up there as their juniors or with their juniors. Um, and it was at that stage that the eyes went and it was quite amazing because um, I wanted to play football. Yeah, I wanted to play cricket. And it was a, a, an era where likes of Chris Balderston played, you know, they played cricket in the in the summer and, and football in the winter. And, and the seasons didn't lap over, um, certainly as much as they do as of today. Um, but it was it was a time and and Dad had been to the opticians only a fortnight earlier. And 
I mocked him a little by saying, come on, read the bottom line. And I was reading the bottom line for him. And a fortnight later, I was in the same chair and I couldn't read the board. And it went that quickly and ended up with glass bottom bottoms, as we used to call them, glasses. And um, that immediately made the decision that football was to go and you therefore could concentrate full-time on cricket. I want to ask you about that in a moment, but just going back to you playing cricket with your mates in the park, was it obvious then that you were by far the best players, the best player among your friends? Because I've played with guys who've gone on to play football at a professional level, and there was no doubt that they were streaks ahead of the of those people that didn't. We used to take it in turns to, to play a game over a week and took it in turns for captains and then you'd stand apart at 10 yards and then you put one foot to the next and and work your way in and finally whoever got the the one at the top was captain and had first choice um and the other one then got the second choice and and I found myself fairly often being the first choice of any of the captains that wanted which I I, I took as a compliment but not as a an answer that said you are the best. Now, when you played for Yorkshire, you've alluded to this to a certain extent. You wore glasses at first, and then you graduated to contact lenses. Um, it's hard to imagine these these days a top-class sports person wearing glasses, isn't it? Because everybody wears contact lenses now nowadays. That's right. But if if you recall, um, a certain Geoffrey Boycott um, played in rimless glasses, and it was, in fact, Jeff who... Um, through Kelvin lenses, started um, trying out contact lenses for sport. And, of course, in, in rugby league and one or two friends that I had in, in football and, and rugby, they started wearing them. And the first lenses were probably, I nearly said, the size of a shilling. Um, but that was the era of those days. Um, they were big lenses. Um, and you could wear these for so long um, but then obviously it became you became sore and being cricket you needed something that you could wear you know for at least 10 hours um, whereas football you could put them in and play an hour and a half and two hours and, and then you were all right but Jeff did a lot of um, research with Kelvin he started wearing these lenses um, and then when I'd played in them for a few years. He said to me, he says, why don't you try these contact lenses? And uh, I said, well, I'll, I'll try. So I spent the next winter trying to wear these hard contact lenses. And I never got beyond two, three hours. Um, the soreness was there and, you know, it was just a hazard of the time. Um, so I kept with the glasses, but then the following winter, I tried again. And by this time, they brought out soft lenses and I was able to wear the soft lenses, but not the hard. Um, and, and this was good for me. So I got into soft lenses um, and basically never looked back from there. You mentioned some names there that many people will remember, whether they're fans of Yorkshire cricket or not. Uh, of course, you've mentioned Jeff Boycott. Um, and you, am I right in saying that when Ray Illingworth 
left Yorkshire, I think it was in 69, to go to Leicestershire, that that was when you got your big break for the county? It was getting to a point where I played in 66 and then I started getting invites. Illy was playing with England and I was working full-time at the uh, at that particular time. Um, and uh, you go into the boss and Illy's being picked on announced on the Sunday and you go in Monday morning and you'd say, um, could I have Wednesday, Thursday, Friday off? Um, but if Mr. Illing was picked for the test team, I would need the following Monday and Tuesday as well. And you would play two, three-day games. If he was 12 man, he'd come back for the Saturday, Monday, Tuesday and you could come back to work. So this worked for, <clears throat> excuse me, this worked for, a while, quite a while. I took what holidays I had um, and they were very helpful to me initially. But then as time progressed, um, 68, I actually topped the, the national averages um, and had 40 wickets at not many, whereas Iliad, 90, 90, maybe... 80, 90 wickets, I don't know the exact answer. But we were beginning to play both of us together. Illy more as the all-rounder. Um, and Yorkshire were, or always appeared to have, two opening bowlers, an all-rounder and two spinners. And Wilson, Don Wilson and, and Raymond were the two spinners for Yorkshire. Um, but then they started introducing me and Illy was batting six, and um, <laughs> it used to work very well. And, and, and when he went to Leicester, um, Jack Birkinshaw and I have had many a, a, a laugh that if it was a good pitch, come and have a bowl, Jeff. But if it was turning, Illy was suddenly loosening up, and I'll, I'll have a bowl now. Um, but Illy was a master technician, and there's no ifs and buts about that. He was very, very clever, but... By playing in the same team as him, then I learned an awful lot. But of course, it came to the point, really, you've topped the national averages, you're playing in front of crowds, you go back to the second team on a regular basis when, you know, there's two men on his dog sort of thing. Um, and you just wanted to be in this life. And and at that time, I remember I had a, a word with, with Freddie Millett uh, who was captain of Cheshire, but a very, very well-respected um, guy in, in the cricketing terms uh, at Lords and indeed with Cheshire. Um, but Fred and I went for a meal that night uh, in our first fixture, and I just said, I'm faced with the prospect of thinking of leaving Yorkshire. And I said, it's something that, They'll break me in half, but I want to play. And he, he he listened to me and he talked to me. And it was agreed at the end of that particular um, dinner that we would leave it until the end of the season, I, uh, a second 11 fixture at Bridlington um, between Yorkshire and Cheshire, which was the last second team game of the season. And we would have dinner that evening, that first night, and, and we would renew the conversation to see how the season had gone, etc. And um, it was quite funny because I was bowling, actually, at Freddie Millett. And 
a great friend of mine, Jim Wood, who was the, the local headmaster, and he was a big cricketer at Bridlington, chairman and everything else involved, came running on between overs, which was, hang on, is this a riot? No, it's Jim running on at the best and quickest he could, and he just shouts, Illy's gone, you're in. And I said, what? He said, he's gone. And Freddie Millett just turned to me and he says, do I presume dinner's off tonight? <laughs> Which I thought was a lovely way of, uh, of putting it because he'd shared it and kept it quiet, but we did go for dinner. Um, so it left me with the, the task of filling a master's boat. And uh, I found it a bit hard in 69. Um, and then gradually, 70 was a good year, got my cap. And then we progress forward. You mentioned there some big names that uh, people of my age and uh, maybe even younger will remember only too well. You mentioned Jeffrey Boycott um, and Fred Truman. Um, now, to to me, both of those characters always seem to be very. I'm trying to think of the word austere. People that you would be uh, scared of, maybe respectful of. Were they like that in reality? Or am I right to think that? They were two extremely dif uh, different people, totally. Um, Boykes was obsessed with succeeding. He knew, you know, he'd come out with a number and he'd know what his average was at that stage. And um, he wanted to progress. I got fairly close to Jeffrey when we were playing. Um, others found it difficult, but... At the end of the day, he, he was a mighty fine player. Um, perhaps you looked at it and you saw certain innings. Um, I remember one game at at Middlesbrough um, and we were playing Glamorgan on the flattest wicket I think I'd ever seen. The groundsman, Keith Boyce, who, who left Middlesbrough to come to Headingley for a good number of years, Keith had prepared this pitch for the end of August and we got there in a dry summer and the, the square itself was an actual picture of deep green uh, with one white wicket that you could hardly see any foot foot uh, footmarks from previous games with the Middlesbrough Creek Club there and everything else. He'd done an absolute marvellous job and his daughter had actually sat on the roller through the winter in several layers of clothes with a book at her knee, driving the, the big roller round and round and round the outfield, which used to be a rugby ground. And this outfield was absolutely pristine. It was a billiard top. And the rough scores were, were 300 each. Um, Glamorgan batted first, we batted second, they batted third and declared... And then Boyce came in the dressing room and said, who wants a net? So I said, what are you on about? So, well, it's a ridiculous declaration. Well, we can give this. And the, the situation, it was the end of August. We were second in the championship at that time. And um, Glamorgan went down near the bottom, but that was beside the point. It was the fact that if we'd have got a win out of it, then you know we'd have stayed up there with only 
few games to go to who actually won the championship. And we started saying, you know, we've got to give it a go. Well, it's a ridiculous decoration and, and one or two. So Hamps, John Hampshire said, I'll come in with you, boys, and I'll give it a go. You just play as normal. And Jimmy Love said, well, I'll give it a go. David Bairstow says, I'll, I'll have a go. And so it was finally decided we'd go in. And so we said to Boykes, right, the best thing to do is you come in at 70 not out at tea time and leave us a situation where we need about 120, uh, 130 with, with the... And those rules those days were um, 20 minutes bowling after tea. Then you went into uh, a final 20 overs. And we said, if you can get us to, to there and we need 130, 120 in those last 20 overs, we can all give it a go. So Boyk's got to this 70 not out with about 10 minutes to go to tea and he blocked it <laughs> and came in at 70 for not out and said now what do I do and we, we just said get on with it and he, he scored a big hundred and we won that game by seven wickets and the way he played that day was absolutely superb and a lot of people would say you know if you want your life depending on something, then get Boykes to bat for you. He was that sort of player. He was he was sacked from the England team for scoring a slow 240. Uh, you know, but the answer was he, he, he was a different person, um, but had such talent and such ability. But I think he was worried at the fact of, you know, the players around him weren't quite as good as him and, and he was a bit concerned if he got out, then the others would struggle. But Was he like that off the pitch as well? Even now, he goes on radio and he talks sense. He talks about the game, he knows the game and he talks well about the game. But some people find him a difficult person to, to have conversation with. Um, he is... Is his own man, shall we leave it that way? Whereas Fred, dear old Fred, bless him, when I got the telegram, which was the way of finding out in those days, Yorkshire didn't spend a lot of money, and the telegram just read, "Report Bradford tomorrow, Nash," and that was the invite to go play your first game for Yorkshire. So I'd lost my mum by this time, and um, Dad came at. I rang him quickly and to find, you know, what happened. And his pallet works and he's, he's not here, Jack. So I said, what do you mean he's not here? So he said, well, he's gone home early. I said, is he poorly? He says, no, 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 he's all right. He's all right, don't worry. So I said, all oh, right. And we had a thing in those days, whoever went to the laundrette, the other one did the ironing. And typical Yorkshire, I was the last to find out that I was going to play <laughs> the next day. Dad had already heard and had come home. We'd been to the laundrette and he was already doing the ironing. And the suit was pressed. The one and only suit I had was pressed. And I set off the next morning, as my late mum would have liked, in pristine condition, stripes, um, trousers absolutely creased to the ultimate and a clean white shirt and I walked through the gates at Park Avenue 
and it was like going to the footballers Wembley and I got myself undressed in the corner out of the way it was an hour and a half before the start before anybody had come and I made my way out to the middle and I looked at the pitch and I'd never seen a wicket like this before there was always in second team cricket there was always a bit of grass in it or a little bit of giving that this was concrete it was white it was fabulous and I'd never seen anything like it I chatted to the groundsman he wished me well and then I had my first meeting with the press as I made my way back and they wished me well and classics there I worked at the time for Wiggins Teep which was a well-known uh, paper merchant and the press, bless them, this Wiggins tea, they're translated as a well-known Leeds tea firm, which went down exceptionally well with the boss. But, however, I'd done my first interview and I made my way back to the dressing room. And when I got to that little area where you come off the stairs and you have a little four-yard walk to the door, I suddenly realised that I was joining a Yorkshire team of... 11 international players and my head was bowed and I opened the door and there was a big table in the dressing room and under the table was this suit that had been pressed that was curled up in a ball with shirts round it and socks and trousers. I looked across at my corner and sat in it was a broad-shouldered gentleman with a black mane and he said, I see that peg up there, lad. He said, it's been mine, he said, for the last 15 years. And if I think I'm changing for thee, there's another thing coming. Are them under there, thine? I said, they are, Mr Truman. Well, pick them up, he said, and you can borrow Raymond's peg for this match. And very, very nervously, I picked these up and I put them on the, with the help of Phil Sharp, and put the on the peg. And when I turned round, Fred was there. And his arms were wide open, his big chest. He says, come and give me hug, son. He said, that's one of us now. And the Uncle Fred will look after you. And he did for life. I just want to move on, Jeff, to your England career because you made your debut in Pakistan and your debut is very famous for the hat-trick that you nearly took. Could you just talk us through briefly what happened? It was a protracted innings. They They were still in their first innings on the third morning of the test match. Madassa got the slowest ever test hundred um, and the pitch was absolutely slow, low and doing absolutely nothing. And scoring was not easy, but you were never going to get out. And um, if you, if you sort of tried to attack them, they'd hit you over the top. If you, defended then they just blocked you out and it was difficult and then finally I got a wicket and um, Safraz came in next batsman and he tried to hit me into India from Pakistan and uh, missed unfortunately it was a straight delivery um, and it brought Iqbal into face the hat-trick ball and this one I thought well he won't want to be involved in a hat-trick um, you might have a little bit more license. You're just going to look to play it safely, I thought. And anyway, I looped it a bit higher and it strained. I wouldn't say it turned, but it, it sort of held its own. 
and Icky played half forward and then went back and he got an outside edge and Mike Brearley dived to his left and, and took the catch. Now, Mike was one of six people around the round the batter for, for the hat-trick delivery. And everybody jumped up in glee, you know, great, that's it. Little Icky, bless him, looked down the pitch, just nodded and said, well, ball, Jeff, and off he went. And I turned around, the umpire's just there. He says, I, I've never experienced an, uh, a hat-trick before. Well bowled, shook my hand and everything. And then Brace came up with the idea that he'd not taken the catch cleanly. And everybody was sort of, but Brace, you did. You know, we were there, we saw it. And no, he says, oh, I'm not convinced. And finally, he made the statement that for the best interests of the series, I'm going to bring him back. So the bringing of him back obviously took the hat trick away from me. It saved me the embarrassment of a Yorkshireman having to buy a round of drinks. Um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, um, I think I'd have been well worth pay paying those uh, those drinks. But a lot of people were convinced it was how, but Breers, bless him, he stuck by his principles. And I admire that. And as I say, we we went back in time when Sonny Gavaska, who adopted my friendship and I did his during our tour of India the year previous, came over to play for Somerset. And we were at Western Supermare and I got one to turn to him and he nicked it round the corner and Hamps made, John Hampshire made the catch. And we all looked... Sonny looked, waited, then walked. We looked at the square leg umpire. He nodded. The, the umpire at my end then gave him out. Um, but Hams came to me and he said, Jeff, he said, I've not caught it properly. I am convinced. So I said, well, you've got to do the right thing then. So we brought Sonny back. And um, he apologised and said, Thank you for your sportsmanship. I think he went from 23 to 138, but that was no way of saying thank you. He should have gone earlier. But anyway, <laughs> it didn't matter. You know, Hamps was happy. He'd made... He couldn't guarantee that he'd taken it and he wasn't happy that he'd taken it. So something like that, he knew, and nobody else was there could say to Hamps, it was clean and it was right. People went on instinct rather than, and he did what was right. And really, in his own words, Mike really, he did what he thought was right. Could I just ask you very briefly in relation to the Mike Brearley incident then, have we established subsequently whether the ball carried or is it still one of those things that will remain forever indeterminate? It's still a story that will go on. Um, I don't think the television in those days were of the situation where, you know, you got the dissection that you get of today sort of thing. Um, and it was just one of those things that, that went by and you moved on. There's so much we could talk about in relation to your career, um, but I suspect we'd be here all day. Um, there's a lot been going on in Yorkshire, which I also don't want to talk about particularly, the off-the-field stuff, because, you know, that's been documented elsewhere. Um, but I do have to ask you about your Yorkshire's prospects for this forthcoming season. I know last season didn't go particularly 
very well. Um, you're obviously a keen observer of Yorkshire cricket. How well do you think they'll do this season? I'm that keen an observer. I'm currently, currently president, but uh, I, I relinquished that role at the AGM this year. Um, and it, it was very sad that we played as we did last year. Um, if I just say briefly, it wasn't a happy camp. Um, we we lost, or we've lost several players who I wish were still here. Equally, we didn't perform to the level that I know Yorkshire's capable of, of playing at. But without doubt, there is a lot going on and, and it's not for me to get involved with that. But um, it's had its effect throughout the playing, the administration, everybody at the club. And we've got to pick ourselves up um, as a unit. I've been involved with Yorkshire cricket for 61 years now. Um, and, and it's one of the low points, sadly. Um, but desperately, I hope that the lads can get together, be one unit, play what to their capabilities, to the best of their abilities. And hopefully um, the second division, I do feel there's a difference between the two in terms of standard. And um, I would like to think that... Um, providing nothing happens ECB-wise, that we're up there challenging for promotion at the end of this year. Do all the things that have been happening off the pitch have an effect on the pitch, do you think? Do you think players are at least conscious of it? Major impact, major impact. And they are conscious of what's going on. They'll, they'll say, we like to keep ourselves to ourselves in the dressing room, but you know every game is there, every spectator has an opinion. Um, you can't go to a game and not hear it. And and the the lads are in the focal point and I feel for them uh, dramatically. The county's turned a corner though, hasn't it now, Jeff? Well, I, I think there's some decisions to be made that are very important. Um, we've just got a new chief exec. Um, we've hopefully a new chairman coming in very shortly. Uh, it's a new new team, shall we say, of, of in the exec. And a lot of people, this is the sad part, there's a lot of good people, both in the administrative side of it and the playing side, who have left Yorkshire. And they've left, sadly, for the wrong reasons, but they've had to leave in their own mind. It, it's affected a lot of people in a lot of ways. And um, they, they see salvation elsewhere, as it were. But um, it's been disappointing, but we've got to be positive and produce our best for next year. Your love of Yorkshire cricket shines through in the way that you speak there, Jeff, without doubt. Could we talk, however, about you now? Because you were telling us before that your optician kind of gave you a, almost like a blueprint, a roadmap of how your vision would um, develop and your loss of vision would, would, would progress. Um, when you heard that news... What were your thoughts? For, for a start, when you, you you're a consultant, they just turn you know, and just turns around. Well, you're going blind. That was the worst news that I got, and and I was completely numb as I left Harrogate, his rooms in Harrogate, to drive home, and I could only get halfway, and I stopped off at some friends, and 
evidently I knocked on the door and, and the door was opened and I just stood there and said, I'm going blind. And there was just silence and, you know, the shock that was there for them was equally to me, but they got some strong tea down me and, and what have you and, and I managed to get home. But it was, it was the recovery started with my optician coming over to see me and saying it's mild. And then those few years later when my doctor played a big part in getting me to meet uh, Bruce Noble. And Bruce, as I said, was, was superb. He talked basic English to me. <laughs> he told me what it was about. He drew little sketches um, and he mapped out the life. But I knew that I'd go through that for quite a number of years with him close to me. And he was able to relate to me. Um, I mean, it, it was lovely. The first time we ever met, he said, there's several things that aren't, aren't right here. Um, I'm a southerner. I went to public school. I this, I that, but I do like cricket. <laughs> and that broke, that broke the, the ice, as it were. And, and this guy I've, have a lot of admiration for. I've been visually impaired all my life. I was born totally blind and then had some operations that, that gave me a little bit of sight. I'm still obviously very visually impaired. Um, yeah. But So it's hard for me to understand the impact that that kind of thing would have on somebody like you who'd been fully sighted. It's interesting to hear what you've got to say there. Um, when did you start having to make changes to your life? Because when we were talking earlier, you talked about having to stop driving, for instance. Um, what changes did you have to make? Well, I, I, I got to 50 when it was time to hand the car in, as it were, which immediately, well, within months, cost me my job. Um, I, I was a director, branch manager. A lot of the time was on the road, 30,000 mile a year job, uh, seeing customers, meetings, this, that and the other and everything. Well, have you ever tried walking around Keithley with a briefcase in your hand and your samples and it's pouring down with rain and you've come in on the train and you walk from one printer to another printer and you're thinking, what am I doing here? And you're very much on your own. And... Uh, to adjust to that, um, what kept me going was effectively um, my retention all the time was the interest in Yorkshire. And I ended up going back to Yorkshire, working there for quite a, a while. Um, I was on the board initially. I'd I brought together the board in 2002. Um, Effectively, I'd read minutes that I found hard and there was a financial crisis, as it were. And I brought a pal in who brought a lot of money in. Um, and Colin Graves, who at that stage owned Costcutter, he'd started up Costcutter and made tremendous um, inroads with his company, Um and he came and joined us. He was a big cricket fan and financially he got us out of the mire. Um, so there was a big part to play there. 
and suddenly the life took off again, but it was Yorkshire cricket. And if it hasn't come over, um, my wife says to me, basically, if you're ever down, go find somebody to talk to, because that's my life. I love talking to people. I, I love sharing things with people. Um, and, and very much I was able to do that. And at Yorkshire Cricket, you can do that. Could I ask you about the practical effects of your visual impairment? You've talked about not being able to drive. What about things like reading, um, getting out and about and, and, and activities like that? Were they still possible for you? Re reading's getting very difficult now. Uh, I get very frustrated. I've got contact lenses in. I wear reading glasses and I have a magnifying glass. Um, and And it doesn't always... It's not always there, so you become frustrated. Have you tried technology like Zoom text or any of the speech-based? No, no, no. I'm not at that... Well, I haven't been at that stage, should I say, but I think that that is where I'm at at this stage, that I have a lot of difficulty um, balancing things out. One of the major problems with RP is, is, is the light, and light to dark and dark to light cause real problems and the best thing i can describe it to people is is when they go to the cinema they go inside the uh, the cinema and they suddenly say oh it's dark where's the seats oh there they are well by the time i've adjusted to that light this film's nearly finished um but basically when I come out from a dark area into the light, it's just a white cloud and I have to wait until I adjust. And there's a time of, of and so when you're in a room where you shadow and darkness to one side and when you look to, to speak to somebody at the other and behind them is the sunlight and everything else, suddenly you've lost them, you've lost everything. So you get very frustrated. You've talked about there the frustration, Jeff. I mean, more generally, what was the psychological impact on you of of realizing that your sight would get progressively worse? You wonder for how long will it? You know, I mean, I've been told that probably I will still have some vision of some sort during my life. You you just worry that will that run out and will you go blind and you don't want that to happen equally I rely heavily on my guide dog um, I get out I go have coffees around Geisley and people are brilliant you know hi Jeff go find a seat we'll bring it across and they look after you and, and it, it's ever so good tell me about the guide dog Jeff he's he's brilliant isn't the third one I've got who is quite superb is <laughs> you can't See, he's been asleep in my study whilst you and I have been talking. And now he's with his sort of mouth on my thigh and he's looking at me and it, it's brilliant. He's just part and parcel of me. How independent are you able to be now, Jeff? You talked about going for coffee. Are you able to get out and about around Geisley and Leeds quite quite happily, quite independently? I go. I won't say I'm happy going around Leeds or, or Bradford or the, or the big centres, but... You, you have one set up, which I went to the hospital, St. James's, for, for some eye treatment, and I ended up seeing three different people, three different lots of drops. And when I came out, I'd gone in at quarter to two, and I came out about quarter to five, ten to five, and it was just a cloud. 
I couldn't see anything. And for the first time, I felt I'm on my own here. And the consultant said, are you all right for getting home? And I said, yeah, I've got my friend with me. And I said to Lester, I said, it's you and me, pal, but I can't see. You've got to get me home. And he just set off walking at half pace. And he walked me through St. James's out to the crossing that we use. And he took me, and I said, find the box. And he went to where you press the button and put the nose up and everything else. We crossed, we got on the bus into Leeds. I got on the wrong bus because I couldn't read the number, but they all go into Leeds, but I was at the wrong end of Leeds. I know. So we yes. walk across, you know, in, in the middle of rush hour, and this dog just walks, stops, and somebody goes, whoosh, in front of you, and then he sets off again, and then stops, and whoosh, somebody else comes in front. And he walked across Leeds, and he found the station. And we went through the, the disabled gates at the station, and he turned right, and he took me onto platform three, and we just sat there. And the train arrived, and the guard got out, and he said, are we looking for the Ilkley train? And I said, we are. I said, he says, where are you off? I said, guys, he said, well, this is it. And he got me to the station. We got on the train with the help of the guard. We we got off in Guiseley, and he just sat down. And the guard says, I'm waiting, I'm watching this. He says, I'm intrigued. I says, I bet it's busy. And there's still just a cloud in front of me, whiteness. And he said, it is fairly busy, yeah. I said, oh, most of them have gone now because he stood up and he went to the next instruction. I said, can you take me home now, pal? And we set off. And just as I was getting home, I was starting to see the outline of the house and the gate. And, you know, half an hour later, I got what vision I had back. But... That's what a guide dog does for you. Could I just ask you a couple of final things then, Jeff? Yeah. Um, you, you wore glasses when you played cricket and then contact lenses, but was visual yeah. impairment anything you'd thought about as a young man? Not really. I, I thought, you know, you look round you. I mean, my dad wore glasses most of his life. Mum wore glasses for reading. You look round at everybody in the office and there's people who come in every day in glasses. And you just think, well, I'll be like that. You know, not a problem. And what uh, would you say you've learnt about yourself since your sight started to go? Um, is there anything that you kind of look at and think, well, I didn't know that about myself? I look at the point that I've been very lucky in life that I've got some wonderful memories more importantly, I've made through sport a lot of friends that are still in contact with today. Um, I've had, dare I say, a good life, as they say. Um, but at the end of it all, um, I try to be normal. I try to just join in where I can, do what I can, where I can. Um, but at the end of the day, there's always something that stops you because, oops, I can't do that. And do your old mates, do your old mates from Yorkshire and in sport just kind of treat you the same, sort of take the mick and all that sort of stuff? I get more grief now than they ever did. You know, he's only, he's only come with his dog because he wouldn't know how to get here. You know, he'd blame it on the dog if he's late. You know, and, uh, you, know you, you get all sorts thrown at you, but every one of them, do you want some help, Jeff? Are you all right? And once you say I'm all right, 
they leave you alone and you get on with it. And if I say, can I have a shoulder? And I put a hand on somebody's shoulder, they'll guard me through. Jeff Cope there, and I'd like to thank Jeff very much indeed for his time and for being so open. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Okay, so which vowel track have I chosen? Well, it's one called My Swan Song. Now, um, I should point out that this isn't my swan song where podcasts are concerned. I haven't done quite as many as I would have done in the past, but that's because I've been rather busy. Um, so uh, watch this space. There will be more. In the meantime, this is my swan song by the vow. Well, me, I don't know where the years go. Stooping so low away. I waited so long for my swan song, such a sweet song to play. No one's telling me how I ought to be. I am alright. Yes, I'm alright. Take a skydive on the downslide. That's the dark side of gray. But it's a show.